0: The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Our text from 1 Thessalonians today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 through 13, it is really crucial that we hear it in the flow of Paul's letter, so I'm going to read again for us uh, the text that Dr. Horton uh, expounded for us last week, beginning at chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Let's pray. Father, write these words in our hearts. Instill, as you have promised, the joy of Jesus into us and the longing to be with him, with you, with all the brothers and sisters whom you have called by the grace of your son into your family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The night before he went to the cross, Jesus told his disciples, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, These things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. What does it mean to have Jesus' joy in us? What does it look like? What are the symptoms of Jesus' joy? I would suggest that our text today from the end of 1 Thessalonians 3 really gives us a portrait of what it's like to have Jesus' joy within us. All of last week I was sort of chewing over this text and thinking about how to start. And I thought, I think I'm going to start by saying the Apostle Paul was no Stoic. And then I sat in this room last Thursday, and Dr. Horton already told us that. Paul is no Stoic. Paul has the ups and the downs of loving people, of risking people. As we heard last week and as we heard in the text, the opening uh, that I read today, Paul had been restless uh, I would even dare to say he was worried. Paul doesn't ta- tells us not to worry about anything, but the one time he talks about his worries in 2 Corinthians, he says he was worried about the church. Our translators know that Paul's not supposed to worry, so they translate it, he was concerned for the church. It's the same word that Paul uses elsewhere to say, don't worry. He was concerned for the church. And Apparently he had reason to be concerned for the church in Thessalonica. He'd had to skip town, some might say, in a hurry, leaving behind the nucleus of new believers in Jesus who were facing immediately fierce entrenched opposition from the the official representatives of the God of Israel in the synagogue. Now the brothers themselves had sent Paul away, Luke tells us in Acts 17.10, but still, the question in Paul's mind goes, would they resent Paul for abandoning them? Or suspect him of forgetting them? Or more seriously, would they give up on Jesus? Either because their perception of Paul's failings or because of the opposition of the hierarchy in the synagogue. Paul was worried with a godly worry. He was no stoic. Although he had learned a kind of archaea contentment. Impervious to circumstances. It wasn't the Stoic out archaea that was a kind of a, a way of insulating yourself from pain or disappointment by cultivating fatalistic indifference. No, Paul knew that the risk of heartbreaking pain and loss was the hallmark of loving people and of living in Jesus' joy. Calvinists can be tempted to protect ourselves from disappointment sometimes by appealing to the sovereignty of God. Now, the sovereignty of God is a great comfort when people into whom you've poured your life and your ministry turn away from you, turn away sometimes, it seems, from the Lord himself. That's a great comfort for Paul to be able to say, as he does to Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. Sometimes it's appropriate to remind ourselves Paul's quotation from Malachi Jacob I loved but Esau I hated but we need to remember that Paul says that after he has said in Romans 9 I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for my kinsmen according to the flesh I wish I were accursed and cut off from God for the sake of my brothers Paul would not insulate himself from the pain by appealing to the sovereignty of God He wouldn't shrug his shoulders at the prospect of those who professed faith in Christ turning away. He wouldn't shrug his shoulders and and cite what John says. Truly, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But he can't say that without tears. He can't just sort of say under his breath, good riddance. (laughs) No, no cares deeply so he was worried he was beside himself with worry what was going to become of the Thessalonian faith and he couldn't stand it any longer so he sent Timothy and then he waited for the report we don't have to wait for reports anymore now we have email right no sometimes we still have to wait for reports you have to wait for reports when the doctor does a biopsy and sends it off and you wait for the lab to process it and you wonder what it is We were talking about this text. My wife reminded me there were times when we had to wait for reports when our son was working in North Africa and away from email. How could we stand to have him away from email? But he was off in the desert someplace with unpredictable shakes and machine gun-toting soldiers and sandy roads that invited accidents, and we waited and waited until we got that email back to say he was in the capital again, safe and sound from a trip. We're not used to that. But think of a time when you had to wait for a report about something you were deeply alarmed with. You know what Paul is talking about when he says, I, was, I had to send Timothy off. I was waiting for his answer. Now Timothy has come back, and now as Paul was beside himself with worry, now he's beside himself with joy. And What does the joy look like here? Well, four things quickly. Relief, delight, thanksgiving, and longing relief when those we love for whom we feared are found to be safe paul says timothy has brought us the good news he uses the verb yongelizami which in every other instance the 19 out of 20 when he paul paul uses it he uses it about preaching the gospel of god's redemption through the sacrifice and resurrection of jesus everywhere else it's about the gospel the best good news but here It's about the report that the Thessalonians are standing fast in the gospel. Leon Morris says, for Christians, there is no good news that can compare with the tidings that God has given men life through the death of his son. One word became the technical term to denote this best of good news, that Paul just this once uses it for other good news is the measure of the joy it had brought him. The joy it had brought him. And Paul's joy is an expression of Jesus' joy. Jesus portrays that kind of joy in his parable of the lost son. When the father, spotting his rebellious son, but now humbled and brought at least to initial repentance, shrugging his way home, the father bursts out and runs and embraces him and shouts for the the feast to begin because the dead is alive and the lost is found. Now, that's, that's anthropomorphism. That's portraying the longing of God and the relief of God in the conversion of sinners in the ways that we have emotions. But at the same time, it's not telling something that's untrue. It's saying that there is great delight in the presence of the angels. That is, as the angels watch God, they see his delight as he brings his elect home. Do you feel relief when somebody comes home to the faith? Do you feel relief when you get the good news that others are standing fast in the faith? Uh, That's a mark of Jesus' joy. Delight is a mark of Jesus' joy in those we love. As Paul says here in verses 7 and 8, we are now comforted by the word we have about your faith in our afflictions. He had sent Timothy to comfort, encourage them in their affliction, and now Timothy's come back and said, they're standing fast. Paul says, in my affliction, I feel comfort now. I feel encouragement now. Now we live. Now we live because you stand. No stoic complacency here. No clinical distance of a professional counselor who allots people a half an hour or an hour and then dispenses them to deal with somebody else. Paul is overjoyed in delight in the report of their faith standing fast because Paul's heart is wrapped around them. What a challenge to us in ministry. Such a temptation to protect ourselves from disappointment by becoming professionalized in the way we treat the members of the body of Christ those who come for counseling, those who are troublesome in the congregation. But Paul says, my heart is wrapped all around you. That's actually uh, quite literally what he says to the Philippians. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you that is confident that God's going to complete his work in you, for I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. F.F. Bruce comments on this passage, Paul's concern for his converts and his sense of oneness with them breathes through all his correspondence. When they were led astray, he was indignant. When they slipped back, he was distressed. When they showed evidence of living lives worthy of the gospel, he was overjoyed. Now we live because you stand. Remember, the only adequate explanation for this is that the joy of Jesus is being poured into the apostle Paul's heart. Left to himself, Saul of Tarsus wouldn't love people this way wouldn't have his ups and downs dependent upon how well they're doing in faith paul's not naturally prone to love this way and the thessalonian christians were not naturally prone to be so lovable but the risen christ takes people who are programmed towards self-centeredness and he turns us inside out so that we take delight in the growth of others Zephaniah 3.16, a wonderful picture of the joy of Jesus. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Sounds like a wedding night. It is a wedding night. The Lord with his people who takes delight in his people, on whom he's showered his grace through the cross and the resurrection. And of course, that leads, that delight leads to thanksgiving. Verse 9, as Paul says, What thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? That rhetorical question is Paul's reworking of Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? You notice what Paul's done with that psalm? What thanksgiving shall I render, pay back to the Lord for all his benefits? But now Paul makes it more personal. All his benefits are you. You are his great gift to me. How can I thank him enough? I want to turn to him and thank him spontaneously. When I was growing up, typically at Christmas, we'd get one or two of the toys we really, really wanted, and we'd always get a new pair of pajamas. But that new pair of pajamas needed to be thanked for, but somehow it just wasn't quite the same as the HO train set that I hoped for and longed for. There's Thanksgiving, and then there's Thanksgiving. You know, there's, there's writing to Aunt Mary and saying thank you, For that muffler that you knitted for me on those cold nights in Southern California, it's going to come in handy. And then there's real thanksgiving. This is what I always wanted. This is the real thing. Paul says, Lord, thank you. You've given me what I've always wanted. Brothers and sisters who are standing fast in the faith. But the fourth thing about Paul's joy is longing Because all this does is just whet his appetite for more. He wants to be with them. You hear him saying that in verse 10. I'm praying earnestly to get back to you, to see you face to face, to supply what is lacking in your faith. And then verses 11, 12, and 13 are really just a window on the longing behind the prayer. Not technically a prayer, although some of the commentators call it that, but actually it's not directly addressed to God. It's spoken to the believers about what he's asking and longing for from God. It's not the imperative of request; It's the optative of longing and wanting. I want to be with you. I want to supply what is lacking in your faith. In the next couple chapters, he'll go on to supply some things that are lacking. They need some more ethical instruction. They need some instruction in eschatology. But he wants them also to grow in love. And he wants them to grow not only in love, as we see from one, for one another, but verse 12, for all. I want you to grow in love for everybody, not just one another within the body of Christ. There's that that missions, evangelism, heartbeat of the gospel in the midst of Paul's longing for the church. I want you to love all kinds of people because Jesus is worthy to be worshipped by all kinds of people. So I long to join you. In the short run, I long to join you to build up your faith, to encourage you, to strengthen your love, to teach you more. But in the long run, in the long run, I long to be with you in the presence of God at his coming. I long to be with you. If you've read significant parts of C.S. Lewis's writings, you know that he has a lot of, spends a lot of time pondering what he calls joy, that longing pang in joy. In his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he says, Joy is distinct not only from pleasure in general, but even from aesthetic pleasure, It must have the stab, the pang, the inconsolable longing. All joy reminds. It's never a possession. It's always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. And in a letter to a friend, he said, all joy, as distinct from mere pleasure, still more amusement, all joy emphasizes our pilgrim status, always reminds, beckons, awakens desire, our best Havings are wantings. The best thing is, it makes us want something more. And, of course, that's what Paul is saying here. I want, I long to be with you, not just in the short run to build up your faith, but I'm looking toward that day when together we will be in the presence of the Lord, when you will stand blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That's what I'm ultimately longing for. That's what Jesus' joy makes me long for. Nothing less will satisfy. Every joyful sign of grace now in the lives of Christians only whets our appetite to want more and more deeper and more lasting joy as we give thanks for how far he's taken us to this point. For the evidence that Jesus is making good his promise, I've said these things to you that my joy might be in you, that your joy might be full. Not long after Jesus said those words to his disciples, as John tells us, Jesus prayed to the Father and expressed his longing for us. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, in his joy, longs to have you with himself. In his joy, he longs to bring you to be with him, to be face to face with his glory, blameless, in complete love. And Jesus' longing will be fulfilled. He laid down his life to make it happen. He picked up his life again to shepherd and guard us. May that longing that's part and parcel of Jesus' joy, not just for yourself, but for your brothers and sisters in Christ, go with you as you serve and live in his church. That longing for what is yet to come and spur you to to the risk of worry. And to the delight of relief, as you see, brothers and sisters, by God's grace, standing fast in faith. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would give us, in deeper measure, the joy of Jesus. The joy that longs for brothers and sisters to stand fast, that finds relief and delight when that, in fact, takes place by your sovereign grace that turns to you in thanksgiving and that keeps on longing, looking forward as pilgrims to the day when we will be together, not just in the short run, but forever and ever in your presence, holy by the grace that you have given to us. Father, we give you thanks and we express our longing joy